So we are studying here thermal and statistical physics. So statistical physics uh, tells you that we're going to be interested in probabilities and that sort of thing. So that makes this kind of an interesting course and in that we're going to throw dice a lot. Maybe learn how to beat the odds in Vegas or maybe you'll figure out that really what you should do is open up a casino. So the first thing we should ask ourselves is, you know, so statistical physics is, is about systems that have many particles in them. So like this table right here, it's got many particles in it, okay, if I think about the atoms and all the electrons that are in it. So what are the things in this table, what are some of the properties that are changing and properties that are not changing right now? Properties the table. So what's something you could think of that's not changing about the table? Mass, color. That's a good question. Okay. Okay. So what about the micro level? Ah, okay. All right. So I can change the shape. All right. Let's pretend I'm not pressing on it. Just sitting there. So what are some things about the table that are changing? Is it changing right now? Why? Might be, but why do you think so? Any time, like, just, you know, any time temperature changes here at all, it's Okay. All right, do you think on the course of a day or something, from night to midday, the temperature in this room changes? So you're going to assume my table is not in equilibrium. Okay. <laughs> temperature, the temperature can change if it's not in equilibrium. Which light? This one. Aha, yeah. uh -huh, yes, okay. Especially due to overhead. <laughs> okay, <laughs> what else is changing? You can't see it. Oh, that's just the overhead. I mean, you're right that the noise couples in the table and What else is changing about the table? Think on any scale you want. Interpret the question any way you want. And find something that's changing. I'm sorry? The positions of the atoms? Okay, in what way? Okay, all right. Okay. Atoms, atoms vibrate. Probably. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be studying how the lamp heating up the table affects its radioactivity. That might be might be long time scales, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> we'll hope the half life is a few billion years and it won't hurt us. Right. <laughs> well, the first lesson of radioactivity, right, is that the inverse square law is your friend. So, yeah. so we're radioactive. You want to be staying away from it. Had a friend who's a fabulous experimentalist. She used to get, you know, A pluses in lab courses that people can't even get A's in, right? And when we did the radioactivity lab, she was holding the samples in her lap. Yeah. When the TA came up and said, "Whoa, the inverse square law is your friend," <laughs> the samples away from you. So at the atomic level, lots of things are changing about the table, certainly. And all these other things are true as well. Uh, there's macroscopic properties that you pointed out that aren't changing on long time scale. The shape, the color. Uh, the temperature will be changing if there's non-equilibrium stuff going on. If it's in equilibrium, if we 
closely controlled the ambient temperature of the room and I didn't, hadn't turned on the lamp to cause the heating of the table. Then I could also put down temperature here if I had you know, not just disturbed the table so much. And the position is more or less the same, the volume, the shape, all of those things. We can uh, also assume that the number of atoms in the table is not changing. Okay, now you know if I whack it, I could rub a few off, but approximately the number of atoms in the table stayed the same. So there's a lot. Okay, so what's, what's nice about statistical physics is it's going to tell us how to get from the one to the other, how to get from this, where we know that on a microscopic level, if we could zoom in and look at everything, the atoms are all vibrating. The electrons are zooming around. Okay, some of them aren't even staying on their respective atoms, some of them are kind of wandering around because this is a bit metallic of a table. So the atoms vibrate, they can also uh, every once in a while jump position, or maybe if there's a defect inside the table, they maybe there's a vacancy and then an atom can hop into that and move the vacancy over and then another atom can hop into that. All sorts of weird things can happen at the atomic scale. And what we're going to concentrate on is how to get from these microscopic changing properties to the macroscopic not changing parties, uh, properties. So that's, that's the point of this course, is to go from here to there, except we're not going to take into account radioactivity. Because <laughs> it, won't, it won't matter for our purposes. Uh, so what's really, really fun about this course is this is the first, the first time you really get to see a connection between the, the microscopic and the macroscopic. you can start to derive the large-scale properties of, of materials. So we, we sometimes call this statistical mechanics or uh, statistical physics, meaning that, that we'll be concerned with the average properties of the table. So it's doing all of these complicated motions on a, on a microscopic scale, and our hope is that in some sense all of that stuff averages out to one average behavior of the table is black, the table is this big, the table is so heavy, the table is a particular temperature. And we'll see how microscopic statistical properties give rise to macroscopic thermodynamic properties. Okay, so that's taking small things to large scale macroscopic thermodynamic properties. Okay, and some of the thermodynamic properties we'll care about are N is the number of atoms in the table, T is the temperature, V the volume. We can also define the total energy in the table, all the microscopic energy put together because the atoms have a particular energy, they interact with each other and that changes the energy of the system. So if I build all that up, I can talk about the total energy in the system. So tell me this, which one of these, how do you expect this list to depend on temperature? So temperature obviously depends on temperature. What about the rest, the number of atoms or the volume or the total energy in the system, how do you expect that to depend on temperature? Okay. How about the volume? Yeah. yeah, that depends on what kind of matter it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this can be a function of temperature. This can also be a function of temperature. The number of atoms we're going to assume, of course, just stays there and is, and is given. Part of what's really fun about this course is that we're going to deal, uh, you get to deal with a nice deep philosophical issue in this course that we're not going to resolve. Don't worry. Not resolve. Um, well, we have some ideas about how to resolve it. But on the microscopic level, physical laws are reversible. I mean, reversible in time. That is, if I showed you a movie of atoms doing anything, 
bumping around thermally in a gas. So if I showed you a microscopic movie of the vibrations of the table, and I played it forward, it was a fun way. If I played it backwards, it couldn't tell me which was which. That's what I mean by the microscopic laws being time reversible in time. Sometimes we say time reversal invariant. So in the very microscopic level, you couldn't tell me whether that movie's playing forward or the movie's playing backwards. You see two atoms whack into each other in a gas and bump apart. If I played it backwards for you, it was just the same. But somehow, we know that ma macroscopic objects have a direction in time. Okay. We're all aging, for example. There's something going forward in time there. If I um, drop something and it breaks, if I drop a glass, if I drop an egg, I played that movie for you, you would be able to tell me whether it was going forward in time or backward in time. So certain macroscopic things somehow can tell the difference, even though all of their microscopic laws are time reversal invariant. So the macroscopic properties are not always reversible. Sometimes they are. Sometimes, sometimes they're not. So that's, that's a fun philosophical question that comes up in this course. Our starting point for how we want to think about making progress. The basic problem is we want to connect the small stuff to the large stuff. Okay? We want to connect small microscopic properties to large macroscopic properties. And our starting point in this course is going to be quantum states. Because we're talking about very small objects. Atoms are small enough that they obey quantum mechanics and uh, that matters. So the quantum states will tell us everything, as it turns out. From the quantum states, Okay, if I think about the quantum states of, of the atoms in this table or, or the atoms in a gas, I'm going to be able to tell you about entropy. Okay, don't worry, we'll actually spend time defining what entropy is. But what we'll see is that a good way to define entropy is that the logarithm of the number of states that are accessible. And we'll, we'll unpack that, okay? letting you know some of the direction of the course. We'll define entropy and we'll have a nice solid definition of it. Okay? Count up the number of quantum states that this system can access, take the logarithm of it, and that is what we will call an entropy. Temperature will also have a microscopic definition. We'll define temperature uh, by how the entropy changes with the energy of the system. Okay, as I think about changing the total energy in the table, how does that affect its entropy, where entropy is somehow related to the number of microscopic states that are accessible, and that will give us a definition for temperature. So, accessible, accessible states means that they are energetically accessible. So, accessible states are at the same energy, microscopically. So think, for example, a hydrogen atom or something. Okay, if I think of a hydrogen atom, you know that there are quantum states associated with a hydrogen atom, a 1s state, a 2s state, 2p, so on like that. Those have different energy levels. Okay, And once I get to, say, the 3 states, where n equals 3, and that tells me something about the energy level. I have actually quite a number of choices of other things I could do to the system. You could put it in the 3s state, the 3p state, so on. Okay? So there's a whole lot of states that become accessible as you go up in, in energy. So accessible quantum states will mean states of the same energy. And these kind of ideas okay, about states being accessible to a system give us the fundamental assumptions of statistical mechanics.
what's nice about this course is that there are a very small number of assumptions. And then after that, we're going to just build up from, from the assumptions and uh, pretty much derive the universe. So it's going to be good. I'll just, you know, for your final, I could just give you a piece of talk and a talk board and say, you know the two assumptions. Go. Tell me everything. So quantum states, we're going to assume, are either accessible or inaccessible to the system. Okay, what's a system? A system is a collection of particles that we've drawn a box around. That's, that's a system. Question? You want this thing right? Can you just write the sheet up? Can you write the sheet Sorry. Give me that sheet now. Let's just show the sheet higher. Okay. All right. So, system is something we draw a box around. So, there are things inside the system, and if it's outside the boundary, it's not in the system. So, we will always talk about the system, which is the collection of particles we've drawn a box around instead. That's what we're going to look at. So, number one, quantum space inside the system, okay, by which we mean all the various combinations of quantum states available to any set of atoms in there are either accessible or inaccessible once I draw a box around it and I don't allow any interactions inside or outside the box. Draw a box around it, like the new universe, it will either be able to quantum mechanics and fluctuate into some states or not. Okay. So they're either accessible or inaccessible. The system is equally likely to be in any accessible state. And remember, accessible just means of the same energy. And this is the major assumption. It's often true, but not always true. Okay. So, if you want to apply statistical mechanics to a system, okay, this is what you're assuming. You're assuming that the microscopic state that are available are all equally likely. And places where physical mechanics breaks down are due to the violation of, of that assumption. Are there any questions so far? We're going to talk about quantum states and what that means. So who's, who's had quantum mechanics? Okay. Does that mean you're currently taking it? Oh, okay. So you've had one semester. Good. Thank goodness. All right. So, okay. If you didn't raise your hand, remember those people who raised their hands and bugged them after class. Okay. Um, quantum states. All right. But actually, uh, chemistry. Okay. Any freshman chemistry course is, is good enough for what we're going to, to need. Uh, so, quantum. What, are, what do I mean by quantum states? Let me think, for example, of uh, a hydrogen atom. Okay, so think, think hydrogen atom. And you already know what those states look like. Okay. You have 1s available, 2s, 2p, 3s, 3p, 3d. Oh, I got upside down, didn't I? <laughs> That's okay. We'll change. The arrows. <laughs> so <laughs> chemists are squirming now. But in a hydrogen atom, your lowest states are 1s. Okay, then you can fill up the 2s state, then the 2p, then the 3s, and and so on. Now, when I get to say, okay, so if I, if I think of the 1s state, and here that means the energy level of the 1s state, I can put an up electron there. I can put a down electron there, and then I'm done. Okay. And if I think of, say, um, the three 
state. Okay, I'm going to have the S guys. I'll have P states. I'll have D states available. Okay. I should draw energy differences between these. It's not quite fair. But when you get into these these type of states here, there's degeneracy. That is, there are states available that are all the same energy. So when we want to count, for example, uh, degeneracy, that's simply states at the same energy. And I want to think about then, uh, you know, how can I count them? Okay, so here if I have three orbitals available, but I can put an up and a down in each one. I would say that there are six states in the 3P level. Now, I'm making, uh, I'm making an assumption here that when I talk about a state, okay, I'm talking about something that's really a stationary state. Okay. So here's a lightning fast quantum review on what a stationary state means. A stationary state is something where the observable properties are not going to change with time. Energy states are stationary states. Okay. But they do have something that changes with time. And you remember Schrodinger's equation, H psi equals E psi, basically the Hamiltonian acting on the wave function gives you back the energy times the wave function. Have you seen yet the time-dependent psi, the time-dependent statement? You've seen it. Okay, all right. So what this means is that if I have a wave function that is an energy eigenstate, it satisfies that equation, okay? So the wave function then has some sort of amplitude associated with it with a phase that oscillates in time. Well, it doesn't sound very stationary. Well, the stationary states, okay, don't, don't change the time. But there's something about them that changes the time. Their phase changes the time. But observable properties do not. So, for example, if I take that stationary state and I look at its probability density, the probability density being absolute value of psi squared or psi star psi, in this case, for this wave function, I have psi naught squared, where I've assumed that that's some sort of real number out in front. And then I take e to the minus e t over h bar times e to the i e t over h bar, which is 1. So the time dependence isn't present in things that I can actually measure. Probability density is something that I can measure directly. So it's that's, that's the sense in which this is a stationary state. So P is time independent. Now, what do you think would happen if I added two different energy levels at the same time? Just mix two energy levels. Psi, psi equals, let's add a 1S state plus a 2S state. Right, this is not a stationary state anymore. And that's because it's not an eigenstate of energy. So let's let's see how that works out. So I'd have this, the 1s amplitude, okay, times the phase factor, EDI, E1s, T over H bar, plus psi 2s, its amplitude, EDI, E2s, T over H bar. Okay, does everybody believe that? added 
two wave functions together, I'm allowed to do that. If quantum mechanics, I can put the electron in this superposition. It might be hard to do, but in theory, okay, it's allowable and you can do it. So, if I have such a state, and now I think about the probability density, okay, probability density is psi squared, and so I take all these terms and square them. So this term here, psi 1s squared, does what you think it should, psi 1s naught squared, because its phase factors will cancel out, and I take the absolute value squared. This one also does the thing you expect it to. Okay, its phase factors cancel out just like you expect. But now I have cross terms, and those are going to have a funny time dependence to them. So the cross terms, one, let's see, okay, the psi times psi star. So I'll have, let's do this, plus psi 1s star psi 2s plus psi 2s star psi 1s. Okay. Okay, so these have funny time dependences to them. I'll get a psi 1s naught times a psi 2s naught times EVI energy 2s minus energy 1s. Okay. That's funny. Plus the opposite, 2s naught, 1s naught. And this time, if I'm looking at 1s, okay, e to the i, e1s, minus, the star means complex conjugate, which means take the i and turn it into minus i. So minus 2s here, t over h bar. So the second two together are going to give me uh, a cosine dependence psi 1s naught squared, psi 2s naught squared, plus, these are the same amplitudes, so psi 1s naught, psi 2s naught, uh, 2 cosine e1s minus e2s time over h bar, okay? So, there'll be beats that have to do with the energy difference, okay? These things interfere their waves in much the same way that sound waves interfere. If I had two sound waves that are close in frequency and I play them together, you will hear the beat. You'll hear the amplitude go up and down with an overall frequency of going of beat that's uh, dependent on the difference between the two. So you hear kind of wah, 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 wah. Sorry. And that, that beat frequency has to do with the difference. Here, here's the beat frequency, okay, between the two wave functions. And it'll appear in the probability density. That means that the probability density itself will be running around, okay? You don't lose or gain probability density in this case, but it'll slosh a little bit. So let me show you some simulations of sloshing. Okay, wobbly, but it'll 
This is called Adam in a Box, written by Dean Dowger. So I didn't pay him yet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is a this is a program, by the way. He's a math guy. So homework assigned this coming Wednesday and due a week after that. I am, by the way, recording lectures. I'm going to try to, well, I intend to post the MP3s on the website, uh, but also I'm going to try something new, podcasting. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because, you know, why should you be the only people to hear the lectures, right? will be uh, <laughs> a lecture that like I iTunes, yeah, I'm going to take these MP3 files and I'm going to put them on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> under, under a podcast. Get a little bit more complicated. 
Now if I have two particles, I have two, two spots, okay? So I can have both up. I can have both particles down. I can have one up and one down. I can have one down and one up. And that's it. There's four ways to do that. Three particles is a lot more. So here is a representative configuration up, down, up. But we'd like to know how to count this generally. Okay, so here we had two macrostates, states, and with the four macrostates, I added a third particle. It's going to go to eight, and the way you count that is that there are two ways to choose whether the first particle is up or down times two ways to choose whether the second particle is up or down, times two ways to choose whether the last particle is up or down. So there's your eight, two to the three is eight. And that pattern fits back where we had it, two particles. You can count it as two to the two. And I can count this one as two to the one. Okay, so the way you think of this is basically like having a bunch of coins, and I flip them all, and I have two ways each coin could land. So two times two times two times two is the number of coins I have, and that's the number of possible outcomes. Or in our microscopic system here, with spins pointing up or down, that's going to tell me the number of possible macro states. So, n particles. one from doing anything in particular, and so on, I will have two to the n states, which is a lot. Any questions so far? So, if I wanted <laughs> a method, let's say I give you n particles, where right, n is an Avogadro's number, 6 times 10 to the 23, lots of particles, each of them could be up or down. And you need some method for generating all the possible configurations because that's what we'd like to study. We'd like to know what's possible microscopically in the system. And then what we'll look at, okay, is again we're assuming that each of those accessible microstates is equally likely. We'd like to find what's the average behavior of the system. There will be certain configurations that are extremely unlikely. They happen once in a while, they're very unlikely. There will be other states that are far more likely and those are the ones that we're interested in. And it's going to turn out that for large enough collections of particles, not likely never happens. Okay? All right. So one way to enumerate all the states. How can I enumerate all the states? I can take up, plus down, up, plus down, up, plus down. And what I mean, of course, is the first particle being up or down, the second particle being up or down, the third particle being up or down, okay? Times particle four being up or down, and so on. And if I wrote all this out, up one plus down one times up two plus down two times up three plus down three, and so on, out to n, where n is very large, and I multiply all that out, I would get every configuration possible in the system. So I'd get some list like everything up, okay? That would be where I take the first term in every spot here and pick those out, okay? And in between I'd get, well, I could have also flipped the first one or the second one. Okay, I'll get all the states that have one spin flip, at least a certain number of those. And then I'll get all the states that have two spin flips and so on. And I can count this out until I get to, okay, so two spins flipped and so on. And the two spins that are flipped could be anywhere. So I get a lot of configurations here. Actually, here's a good question and so forth. Um, 
connect these sets here. This first set here has almost spinned up. The second set has cut off by itself because it's got one spin down and all the other spins up. How many of these do you expect if I have n particles, n plots? N. Good. So there's n of these. The next one's going to be harder to count. It's, you know, how many have two down, okay? So now I have to think then about all the possible ways I can make n particles and put two up, sorry, two down and the rest up, okay? So it turns out that the binomial theorem will help us, uh, will help us sort this out. So I want to organize the list by uh, magnification. So I'll have some configurations that have all spins up. And if each spin counts for, for one, okay, I'll have a magnification that's n. I'll have some configuration to have one spin down and the rest all up. What's the magnification in that case if I count every spin as either plus one or minus one? And minus two. Okay, and then there are some configurations that'll have two down. What's that one? And minus Okay, and so on. So I can organize the space this way. And what I'd like to do is fill out this chart here and figure out how many. Okay. So when they're all pointed up, we already know that there's one way to do that. They all point up. When one is down, there are n ways to put that side down. Okay. Do you remember how to calculate the next one? Where I have n particles and two are down? So, do you have a general way to get that? Um, n over, uh, well, the n factorial over uh, n minus the number of ones that are down factorial, and I guess depending on whether we want commutations or permutations, times uh, also over the number of uh, ones that are down factorial. Okay. All right. So this is this is the general form that we're looking for. Okay. Which is how if I have n particles choose two to be down. N particles choose three to be down. Okay. So this is the sometimes you write this as n two like that n two two. Okay. And that'll be how we can fill out the table. But another way to, to think of that is by using our generating functional. So, for example, uh, x plus y to the n in general is a sum of n factorial n minus j factorial j factorial x to the n minus j y to the j. Here, for example, if I wanted a quick and slick way to multiply out up plus down, times up plus down, times up plus down, and get all the, the uh, possible outcomes, I could do it using the binomial theorem, which incorporates the formula set. Okay. So here I have. For up plus down to the n, I have a sum over j from 0 to n of n factorial divided by n minus j factorial divided by j factorial times up the n minus j down to the j. And that's the way it's going to multiply out for me and tell me this number right here, n choose j, will tell me how many uh, ways there are to get that particular magnification. And that will tell me the degenerate 
of each magnet's addiction. Are there any questions so far? It's really a, it's the same math as flipping coins. So, actually, I have a coin flipping exercise for you. It's a rock coin, but it's mathematical. So, a math problem for you involving coins. So, problem one, let's say we flip ten coins. Okay? I want to know uh, what's the probability of that half cone's head? Actually, why am I writing this? I am going to show you the. Actually, have it on my computer. So we're going to be slick. Use my computer again, and I'll put the problem up on the board. But what I'd like you to do is we're going to put some problems on the board, okay, about flipping coins. And I want you to break up into groups of three to solve them in class. Okay? So, can you just break up into groups of three on your own, or do I need to help you? I'll close my eyes and turn around and break up into groups of three, and I will put this up for you. Yeah. Yeah, do do exchange names and uh, you know tell people what you did over the summer. Case. 
Okay, the 10 coin case had a wider distribution, right? When we had done 10 coins, then we graphed the chances of having 50% of them come up heads. You told me I had a 45% chance this time. Okay, so 25% chance, which is not drawing this to scale, but that's you know higher chance there. But it wasn't as sharp of a, of a distribution. Okay, so now imagine taking this 10 coin probability distribution and 100 coin probability distribution. You now bump it up by another factor of 10. Okay, 1,000 coins, which if you have mathematically you can calculate. Okay, by the time you get to 1,000 coins, okay, you'll find the same thing. The peak of the distribution is going to go down, but it's going to get so narrow that that won't matter. That basically, you will very rapidly get a delta function there in the middle. Okay, because you have now all these possible outcomes that have about 49 to 51% head, and the probability of anything else happening is going to be nil by comparison. Down, okay, here, right, when we only had 100 coins, the probability of 20% coming up was down at the 10 to the minus 10 level. Not going to happen, okay? So now, as I go to 1,000 coins or a million coins, the probability distribution will rapidly approach the delta function. So this is what we mean by using statistical mechanics on systems of many particles. What happens is as many becomes large. When I get 10 to the 23 coins, it's very correct mathematically to say that nothing but the most probability, the most probable configuration will happen. Okay? Everything's going to be right here in this delta function, quite it, half the coins are up, <coughs> half the coins are down, once I have a macroscopic number of coins. So this is the physics of large numbers. People talk about the physics of small numbers with lots of fluctuations. The physics of large numbers is such that the fluctuations start to not matter. And you can really talk about an average behavior that is something and that is known. So the more particles you add to the system, the more you can be sure that the system will be right there in, in this very sharply peak distribution function and that you can tell me on average what the collection of particles is doing. Even though if there's an underlying probability distribution, okay, at the end of the day, it's going to be such a sharp probability distribution that you actually know the answer. So that is, that's it for today. So I'll have an office hour, I'm going to have an office hour tomorrow, Tuesday. We said four, one, four, five, so. See you Wednesday.